Okay, so welcome back everybody to um, our first afternoon session. Um, I am very pleased to welcome Richard Cross from Notre Dame and formerly of Oxford uh, to give, he, so it's a pre-read paper. I'm giving comments and what I'm gonna do is spend uh, more time than I normally would just laying out the two accounts that Richard goes through since this territory uh, is probably unfamiliar to a bunch of you. Then I'm gonna raise a couple quibbles and ask Richard to expand some more on what he takes the philosophical pros and cons of the two different views to be. First though, I should say uh, that when I was asked to give comments on Richard's paper, my initial thought was, what am I gonna wear? Because if you know Richard, <laughs> you know he is sartorially splendid. So I decided I couldn't play that game. I would just play a different one. And so I'm wearing the t-shirt about, you know, Texas high school football. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to be reading my comments through also in, uh, just the part where I'm uh, recapping what Richard says so that I don't mischaracterize his position at all. Good. In his rich and provocative paper, Richard Cross contrasts two of the central medieval accounts on the relation between testimony and Christian belief. The two accounts being, of course, that of Aquinas and Duns Scotus. Before going on to describe what he says about them, though, it's worth noting for the non-medievalists in the room that contrasting Aquinas with Scotus is hardly a neutral thing. It's more like contrasting Gryffindor with Slytherin. And the question is always, which one is which? <laughs> um, since the early 14th century, Aquinas versus Scotus has been associated with controversies such as analogy versus university of being, species natures versus individual hexades, and of course, uh, intellectualism versus voluntarism. Richard skirts around the most contentious points of comparison, but you guys should be aware these are lurking in the background, and I'm hoping that Richard will say a little something more about them um, in his response, and that'll come out in Q&A. So Richard's main focus is the role that testimony plays in religious faith, and his final conclusion is that Aquinas relies heavily on the idea of infused faith, holding that only divine testimony can justify religious belief, whereas Scotus believes that, that human testimony is not only necessary, sorry, it's not only sufficient, but necessary. I'm gonna push him on this at the end. This indicates a radical divergence in their attitudes towards such things as moral responsibility and Christian belief. In this respect, as we'll see, uh, insofar as Scotus is more libertarian, I imagine most of you guys will be inclined to put him as Gryffindor and Aquinas as Slytherin. Okay, Aquinas distinguishes between belief, faith, and knowledge in terms of the certainty we attach to particular propositions. Scientia, the term that by the 16th century has more or less devolved to science uh, in the sense that we use it today, represents the medieval gold standard of knowledge. It originally has a very specific scope, logically uh, necessary propositions that we grasp as conclusions of demonstrative syllogisms in the first form. 
the first principles of which are known a priori. Obviously, when people are talking about this in their posterior analytics commentary, which is where a lot of the Aquinas that Richard draws on comes from, they, they tend towards losing the term, using the term a little more loosely, but it's worth noting that it has extremely rigorous standards. It's not knowledge in anything like the way that we think of it today. Belief, suspicion, and doubt, however, involve propositions that we assent to with varying degrees of certainty. Our assent to the conclusions that we get to in Scientia are compelled. We, ha we ha sort of are forced to believe them, but uh, propositions that we're willing to grant we might be wrong about are the subject of, of these other three categories. Aquinas denies that we can ever have full certainty regarding human testimony. So no scientia for testimony, even in the looser sense. The best we can do is what Richard calls probable certainty, where the degree of probability depends on contingent factors of the situation, such as how many people report the same thing, how reliable they are, etc. The question of why human testimony cannot be taken as absolutely certain comes down to Aquinas' recognition of the possibility of error in the human cognitive process. Some of you might remember a popular video that made the rounds a few years ago in which you were asked to keep track of how many baskets somebody was making on the basketball court. At the end of the video, you were asked if you'd noticed the gorilla that had danced across the screen at one point, right? And the vast majority of people who watched this had, had not, right? So this sort of uh, Aquinas' take on human testimony boils down to the claim that even when the majority of a group of people who watches this video reports that there's no gorilla, we can't be certain that there's no gorilla. The cause of this error isn't a glitch in the visual process. When people rewatch the video, they see the gorilla immediately, right? The error is in attention and imagination. So the section of the paper where Richard's detailing exactly what's going on in the cognitive process is relevant here. We're entitled to believe propositions on the basis of someone's testimony, but we can't know them in the strict sense of knowledge. So what does this have to do with Christian faith? Richard says that he's just gonna assume throughout that the Christian faith must quote, have a level of credence and its contents have a level of credibility equal to that of scientific knowledge. And I'll return to that principle in a minute. He suggests that Aquinas claims that this level of credence for the Christian faith is exactly what happens. Someone with faith has firm adherence, absolute certainty in a proposition. Where does the absolute certainty come from in these propositions? Well, where does everything come from for Aquinas? God, <laughs> right? And this is something that Scotus is going to object to rather strongly, but Aquinas holds that someone who believes something as revealed to them by God believes it as essentially coming from the first cause as a matter of divine direct testimony, which is maximally credible. And there's certainty that comes from God's giving us the faith to believe these revelations in the first place. So this is the doctrine of irresistible grace. Right? God doesn't just sort of, <laughs> Keith is like, whoa, oh yeah, you're home. <laughs> you know, I'm worried about what's coming next. Oh, no, 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 it's all good. Just, we're just sticking with irresistible grace here, right? God doesn't force us to have faith, but what God does do is move our will so that we want to accept the gift that we're given. So we accept 
the gift of faith willingly than once God's helped us want it. That's the doctrine of irresistible grace. Scotus, of course, as Richard points out, rejects this entirely. For Aquinas, though, this means that divine infusion of faith means that two people who are faced with Keter's Paribus, the same evidence, can have different levels of appropriate certainty. Suppose I tell you all that God is three in one and every single one of you wholeheartedly assents to this proposition. Well, on Aquinas' view, if you've got infused faith, your belief is sort of justly grounded in its relation to the first cause. But if you don't have infused faith, then you have just wrongly assented to a proposition that you don't have sufficient evidence for. I take it that's how his view goes. Scotus, writing just a few decades later, is much more optimistic than Aquinas about what human testimony can get us. He introduces a general category of faith as involving a level of credence above belief and below knowledge, scantia. So acquired faith is, quote, certain belief on the basis of merely human testimony. And it involves contingent propositions to which he claims we can assent without fear of contradiction. Examples of these kinds of propositions include that there is somewhere in the world that you have not been. That one, you know, seems pretty safe, but and that this person is your mother or father. Everybody watches Star Wars. Is like, <gasps> okay. <laughs> not only can we have acquired faith about propositions like the world has existed for longer than I have, Scotus believes that given the right kind of testifier, we can have acquired faith about propositions like God is three in one. As Richard notes, Scotus's position on acquired faith appears to prevent infused faith from needing to play much of a role at all. In fact, Richard claims that it just doesn't play a role. Not surprising, perhaps, given Scotus's voluntarism and the problem that infused faith seems to raise for free will. Scotus denies that faith can be the sort of hyper-reliable habit that John describes and that Aquinas thinks automatically allows the person to avoid firmly assenting to propositions that contradict sacred doctrine. No, no internal intellectual habit can determine the contingent external properties that dictate whether the testimony and its contents should be accepted. In other words, it looks like he rejects the possibility that I just gave a moment ago, where those of you with infused faith get the truth of that proposition, right? God is three in one with absolute certainty, and those of you without infused faith assent to it wrongly. So I take it that Scotus just rejects that. According to Richard, Scotus holds that the scriptures are human reports of divine revelation, whereas for Aquinas, it's just direct testimony. Thus, the credence that we put in the teachings of scripture should have the weight of acquired faith, not the weight of infused faith, but that's okay. Because according to Scotus, if the testifiers are reliable enough, acquired faith is fully credible. On the other hand, if someone presented with Christian teaching automatically believes them, or Christian teachings automatically believes them on the basis of infused faith, this process seems to Scotus to bypass the will and not be in our voluntary control. He worries that this interferes with our moral responsibility in a way that makes it unfair to punish non-believers with, say, eternal damnation, 
and reward believers with, say, eternal life. Thus, in sharp contrast with Aquinas, Scotus believes that we can freely refuse the gift of divine grace. Or to be precise, he believes that God won't cause us to want to accept the gift. Okay, Richard concludes that Scotus's view, quote, upgrades the value of human testimony in a way that introduces an element of luck into faith. At the end of the paper, he goes so far as to claim that we need human testimony in order to have faith in the first place. And if that's true, and if God allows this to be a matter of chance, that is, whether or not you hear the right kind of testimony at the right time, then who ends up with fully credible Christian faith depends to a large extent on luck. All right, these last two bits strike me as rather big ifs. I'd like Richard to give us some more reasons for accepting them. Scotus surely doesn't believe that there are no cases in which human beings acquire faith via direct revelation, right? Uh, versus human testimony. He's got to believe in Abraham, you know, talking to God, for example, you know, the prophets. Um, it also seems to me too strong to claim that Scotus's voluntarism would require God's being completely hands-off about things like who's talking to whom, right? So what's, what his voluntarism is going to do is make you freely able to reject the gift of faith, it doesn't necessarily mean that God's not going to sort of arrange that, you know, you've got the right person to you talking at the right time, making it available to you whether or not you choose to accept or reject it. Okay, so to that extent, I'm not sure luck, I mean, I'm not sure how lucky this, this gets. Um, okay, so two more very minor, minor quibbles. First, I'm, I'm still, like, we talked about this at lunch, and I'm just still not sure that the, the best way to talk about what's going on um, in the case of Aquinas is to think of the scriptures and the authority of the church teachings as being cases of direct testimony. And it depends a little bit on, on what you mean when you're talking about testimony, right? So it'd be, it'd be great if Richard could say a little bit more about this. Right, I take it that even if you're the kind of person who believes that every single thing in the scriptures is like word for word what God said, the creeds are a kind of different story. Right? You've got a group of people, you believe that they've been like, divinely inspired to produce this document, but that's not necessarily the same as saying like this is the result of direct testimony. So there it kind of depends on what you're taking testimony to be. Okay, second, <coughs> strikes me that Scotus should be more worried about human testimony than he is, right? He, he has all that stuff about how, oh yeah, if I think you're reliable enough, I'll basically believe whatever you say. And this seems to be open to at least two worries. On the one hand, you've got like, you know, subjective worries. Suppose that, right, like I'm really gullible and I'm gonna believe whatever Jeff Russell tells me Right? And, and, you know, I'm lucky because he's usually pretty reliable, but, you know, Richard, on the other hand, is a total curmudgeon and, and isn't going to believe Jeff no matter what he tells him. Right? <laughs> like, Jeff is, is just a reliable source of testimony in these two cases. And what makes the difference here is sort of like subjective factors about, you know, us being more or less inclined to believe him that might not have anything to do with, like, these kind of, like, external contingent circumstances. 
Um, at the same time, you, you get this, I don't see why Scotus is quite so quick uh, to accept or to reject Aquinas' worries, right? Like even you can have normally trustworthy people who, you know, Jeff watches the gorilla video and I'm like, hey, Jeff, have you seen any gorillas today? And he's like, nope. <laughs> Right? And, it's, and he's wrong. He has seen a gorilla, right? But it's just, you know, there's something that's possible for him to be screwed up in, in even giving us what he takes to be completely true testimony. It worries me that Scotus doesn't seem to have any of these kinds of reservations. So if faith ends up depending on chance, as well as depending on, on this, you know, like the vagaries of human testimony, the picture of Christian faith that develops ends up looking a lot weaker than you'd expect from somebody um, even like Scotus. So call me a Calvinist, but I'd rather have to deal with worries of irresistible grace than moral luck when it comes to matters of faith. Thank you. Well, thank you, Christina, and thank you for inviting me. Um, I often end up being a, a kind of token historian in these, in these kinds of uh, gatherings, and I must say, I enjoy it a great deal. Uh, not, not least because it gives me a crash course in, you know, in some area of philosophy that I don't normally stray into, and I must say epistemology is one of those, because as I tried to draw out in the, in the paper, for reasons that it's hard really to explain, the medieval thinkers weren't hugely interested in it. So to get the account of the stuff that I was talking about in Aquinas, for example, I did indeed have to dig around in pretty obscure places, right? A commentary on Aristotle's De Anima and a commentary on the posterior analytics. Um, and in Scotus, I talked in the paper about a little self-contained, you know, uh, anti-skeptical discussion, but really that's the only thing like that in the whole Middle Ages and by, by, by far the most developed thing. And if you've ever seen it. It's only a few pages. It's not very long. Um, so Christina has some questions for me. Yeah. So the first one is, could Scotus have an account of direct revelation? Um, the answer is, uh, he does, but it's very hard to see how he can do, because he's got, he's got a, an objection to Aquinas on infused faith. Which, which seems to rule it out. And so the problem that, uh, that or one of the problems that Scotus has with Aquinas on infused faith is this, well, you know, where does your certainty come from? And he thinks that what Aquinas is saying is it's sort of, it, the certainty that you get with infused faith is really uh, just a kind of hyper-credence level, right, that comes along with infused faith. Um, and Scotus simply worries that... Um, you know, you can get the same credence level attaching to uh, false beliefs. For example, the heretic feels just as confident as, as the Catholic uh, in his faith. Right? So that it can't be that that's what is giving you the certainty. Um, it can't be, according to Scotus, your, um, your knowledge that God has revealed these things because that's part of the content of the faith, and so it can't be what, as it were, makes the faith reasonable or justified, right? It's not an a priori. Uh, the, the, the Christian faith isn't an a priori matter. It looks like something extrinsic to the content of whatever that body of doctrine is ought to be the thing that grounds the faith. 
Now, how it would be with direct revelation is you would think, well, God would have to feed information into, let's say, whoever, St. Paul. Um, and you would have to have a special marker so that you, you would know it was the right kind of thing. But Scotus's account of infused faith seems to rule out any possible marker that he could provide. Um, so I don't really know what Scotus would be able to say about that. Um, so I'm going to leave it at that. I agree with you. It looks like it's a problem. Um, on luck in Scotus, that was just... It's, there may be other ways in which it's not a matter of luck that someone has the Christian faith, um, but there's no kind of um, epistemic criterion right, that would secure a difference between Christian faith and a heretic's faith. There may well be other ways in which luck is avoided, but not going to be epistemic ways. They're going to, they're going to be to do with, as Christina said, your circumstances where where God's arranged for you to be on a certain day so that you hear a certain charismatic preacher or something like this. Um, so he's, I probably didn't want to state the luck as strongly as you did, as a general, a general worry. Um, but you're not, unlike Aquinas, you won't find what solves the luck problem from within the religious epistemology. It's going to have to be extrinsic in just the way that Christina was suggesting. Um, your next, the next worry, well, you know, Aquinas, he just says, you know, you believe these things because God says them. And where does God say them? In the Bible. The Bible must be literally God's word. And then you worry about the church creeds. Well, Aquinas just thinks that these things follow from the scripture. They just, they just set it out more clearly, more plainly, uh, or not, right? They just spell out some of the things which are in there. But, you know, you could get them just by some strict deduction. Right? So, in effect, they're either God's words or things which follow directly from God's words, right? by, by some kind of logical relationship. So, yeah, in effect, the creeds will count as the same thing. Um, and they will have to, if you, if you believe the creeds and you believe the church, uh, you'll be believing things because God says them, according to Aquinas. Um, of course, it may be a frantically implausible claim that Christian creeds follow, uh, you know, by a simple logical deduction from the Bible, but that, that's a different issue, and there's, there's no point in our debating that uh, right now. Um, yeah, so Scotus on testimony. So he mightn't be as naive as you think, right? Um, what you get is something like this. He doesn't state it explicitly, but he clearly thinks, well, you know, um, other things being equal, unless you've got reason not to believe this testimony, you would believe it. But that seems true, right? We don't go into testimonial situations uh, automatically thinking, oh, I ought to doubt this. We go in automatically thinking, oh, I ought to accept this, unless I've got a defeater or some, uh, some reason not to accept it. Um, Yeah, I was going to give an example, but that, that, that seems to me obviously true. Where I agree with Christina is that Scotus does seem hopelessly optimistic uh, about the credibility of the Christian religion. Um, I suppose context might explain that, right? It might have just seemed very obvious to him in the medieval world. Um, as obvious as it is to me that if I ask someone on the way to the Bodleian and they point me in a certain direction, unless I've got a really good reason to think they're not... 
telling the truth or they're mistaken. I would just go in that direction. It may be the same as that. And he gives, I gave in the paper, he gives a, set of, a, a, a series of ten reasons why Christianity is uh, credible and more credible than other religions. So his way of coping with possible disagreement is, again, just by trying to find um, considerations that would show that this kind of human testimony is more credible than that kind of human testimony. I assume what's motivating that is some kind of general assumption that, um, you know, uh, other things being equal, you believe testimony. If you're faced with disagreement, well, you try to work out uh, which of the two sets of testimony is more credible. And that, that seems like a reasonable approach. The arguments themselves, as I said, are a pretty mixed bag. Um, they're sort of well-known to, I know, readers of Locke and modern apologetics and things like that. Um, but I think they're there because, you know, it's only when there's, you know, some cause, some reasonable cause for doubt, say disagreement, I mean, then you would need to start inspecting the grounds for believing the testimony more closely. But uh, to me, that seems like a perfectly reasonable undertaking, whatever you think of the arguments. Um, that seems to be what he ought to do. Um, ah, there was a fifth point, and all I've written down was infused faith. <laughs> it was your, the very last thing you said. Obviously, I thought I was going to remember what it was. Do you remember what the last thing you said was? Mm -hmm. When it comes to faith, like, I'd rather side probably with the irresistible grace issue. So you're probably going to tell me why I shouldn't do that. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, a quine, it's a, so this is just, in a way, there's a, there's a theological thing floating around here. I think I've dealt with the luck thing in a way. Yeah. Because, I mean, this just goes really into theology and outside of epistemology altogether. But uh, since you mentioned it, I may as well. Mm -hmm. I suppose it is a, a conference on religious epistemology. I mean, so there's a great debate between different kinds of Christians on um, the extent to which, uh, first of all, you could perhaps earn. So, so the idea is you're supposed to get grace, and grace is the thing which constitutes you as someone who is saved and goes to heaven. Right? Now the question is, how do you get it? Right? Well, one view is you get it through your own good works which merit it. Right? And this view is called the Pelagian view. Most Christians regard it as straightforwardly heretical. Right? The other extreme is exactly the view that Christina was mentioning. Right? Well. Uh, God just gives it to you. Uh, and it's not a case of coercion because he moves your will to accept it. And being coerced is being made to do something against your will. It's not against your will because God's making your will want it. Right? Then there's a middle view. And this is a view that Scotus has, which is that um, you can't earn it. Uh, God gives it to you, but you can resist it if you want to. Um, and then there's just a theological debate, in a way. Is that view heretical or not? Right? Uh, I think Calvinists would say, yes, that's a heretical view. Aquinas says, yes, that's a heretical view, as far as I can tell. Um, I would say it's probably the right thing to say, <laughs> um, if you were going to take a view on, this, on these things. And as it happens, I don't know, about 15 years ago, uh, in Faith and Philosophy, I actually wrote an article defending that viewpoint, uh, and it was called something like... Um, anti-Pelagianism and the resistibility of grace, and I commend it to you as a little theological enterprise. Um, <laughs> that, I think, is where you would want to... Yeah, I think that's where you'd want to be from a theological point of view. Um, 
And you can avoid the luck problems by still saying, well, you know, God, God uh, offers this gift to you, then it's up to you whether you accept it or not. Um, so that would be Scotus's way through the middle. I think that's, that's what I want to say. Thank you very much.